Welcome to Holding Unfolding, a podcast about facilitation. I'm Abby Hilton. I use she, her pronouns. I'm based on unceded occupied Lenape lands in New York City. Um, I'm thinking about the politics of transcription and audio editing a lot these days, which is fun. And I have an interview for you this week with Jean Finley from the ALC in Philadelphia, which is a really interesting conversation. They have a really interesting story about how their community came to be and how it's evolved over the past few years, particularly over this this last year and not quite year and a half, but you know, their COVID adaptations. And so I'm excited to get to share that interview. Um, But some quick notes before we jump in. Gina's going to reference a tendency at Sudbury Valley schools. So those are self-directed learning environments, self-directed education environments that are distinct from agile learning centers in part because of, as she talks about, the ideas about how adults are expected to engage or not engage. And so just know when when she's referencing Sudbury, her kids' transition, that that's part of it. Facilitators at, at Agile Learning Centers tend to be more active participants in the communities and we're more allowed to recommend a kid a book we think they'll like or invite them to take an online class with us that we're taking and think they might be interested in. There's space for our our influence more than in some self-directed spaces where there's concern that adults will inevitably exert their influence and authority in, you know, too much, right? In ways that don't honor young people's self-determination and own inclinations to explore. So she's going to talk about spawn meetings and having to figure out spawn in the Philly ALC. And so if that's new for you, that's just one of the many names for our morning and afternoon meetings that bookend the day. So the morning meetings, the morning spawns in centers that use that language because we have video game kids. Um, Those meetings are for reviewing the schedule and setting the intention you know, setting our goals and intentions for the day and sharing together. And the afternoon ones are for reflecting on and sometimes documenting our days. There's a lot of variation, but that's basically what those meetings are. Um, There's a part where she's going to talk about having a roots and a branches program. And there are some agile learning centers that have, because they've got distinct needs for very young children, they set up complementary programs. So it's not age segregated per se, but for kids in, in the Roots program, the really little ones, maybe a parent needs to be there or maybe they're in a part of the space where there are fewer stairs that they have to navigate or where other other resources and design choices and operation choices 
are tailored to the needs of very young children. And so that's that's what that program is. She discusses game shifting at some point and students redesigning their game shifting board. And so the game shifting board in an agile learning center is, and other spaces, is a board that makes the structure of a meeting clear and explicit. And so it'll say, you know, are we starting on time or are we going to wait five minutes for latecomers? Are we sitting? Are we standing? Are we in small groups? Is somebody calling on folks with raised hands or are we taking turns speaking? She talks later about a, a speaking style that's usually an option on that board and it's called popcorn. And the idea is that everybody talks once, but before and after you say your piece, theoretically, folks say, like, kernel, because you're an unpopped popcorn kernel, and then pop once you're done speaking and have popped and are not going to speak again. Um, But those meetings never are structured the same way twice. Um, And it's almost kind of a game to see how many variations on a theme we can come up with collectively without losing the spirit of the format. So that's what that is. And finally, there's a part near the end of the episode where I mention waiting for the Department of Education to make some choices about their operations next school year before I can make communications to our local community that I feel, you know, in integrity signing people up for. It's been really hard because <laughs> I want to only promise people what I can follow through on, right? But things are changing pretty constantly. When I recorded this episode, that's that was true and I was waiting and it's been a few weeks since then. And so if you are a New York person listening and you are freaking out potentially, The DOE has released, the Department of Education has released their current plans, and I wrote and emailed out and posted the New York schools' plans for next year. So those are on our website. Yeah, those are more, (laughs) that's more up-to-date than my comment in this episode, which I didn't edit out because it felt like a weird time capsule-y thing to leave in. So all that said... Let's go ahead and get into the episode. All right. Hi, good to see you. Good to see you too. Do you want to start with an introduction? Just your name, your pronouns, and where you're at in the world? Sure. My name is Jean Finley. Uh, My pronouns are she and her. I work at Philly ALC in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I'm also a parent of two students there. Sweet. And I'm actually just realizing I used to know what part of Philly, the Philly ALC was in, but you moved. We did move. Now we're in like Bella Vista, Queens Village area. Okay. So just south of South Street. Cool. How did you move before the pandemic or during it? We moved during it and we moved in order to be able to open this year. We needed like better ventilation we needed windows until <laughs> we could open and we wanted to be near more green spaces in center city. Like we had a couple of options, but not very many. And we knew we would be in a more densely populated area. 
And it was a place that a lot of our students needed to take public transportation to versus if we moved a little bit farther south, we made it possible for more people to walk to school or be dropped off because you can't, driving in Center City can be, can take up a lot of time and be super stressful. Yeah, cool. That wasn't where I was planning to start. I just realized I couldn't place you anymore. How, so can you share a little bit about your school community and your role in it? Sure. I am a a facilitator and an admin there. So I'm keeping the doors open, paying the bills, bringing uh, people in, handling admissions stuff and facilitating also to a greater and greater degree as we've been open. At first, like, I think we thought that I would just handle admin stuff and my role has slowly evolved over time to be more involved in the day-to-day with students. We, uh, our school was founded by parents, which I think makes us a bit unique um, in the ALC world. We were at another self-directed school, in fact, and finding that like there were needs we saw that weren't being met and that we were wondering what other options were out there and came across the idea of ALCs. And we're like, oh yes, that, that's pretty much exactly what we were looking for and ran with that model. We were founded by 15 founding families. And yeah, yeah. So, which is an interesting exercise in like community building and community management in and of itself. And we've evolved over time to like being a smaller grouping of those original families and to brought in a lot more people in the world. We're in our third year now. So we've managed to survive and thrive. Yeah. <laughs> Especially during a pandemic that feels like a big accomplishment. Yeah, it is big. I Can I just ask what that was like getting 15 families on enough of the same page about what you wanted to start a new project? Yeah, yeah, that was fascinating. The majority of us came from a self-directed school, like I mentioned, so we agreed about a lot of that stuff, but not all of us. Some some of the families came out of public school at that moment. Um, a lot of them were coming, like had littler kids who were trying school for the first time. So there, there definitely was a lot of, of brainstorming meetings where we like tried to like, what can we agree on? What is really important to us? And, you know, it's a good thing we shared a lot of core values and over time, I think we, we found more parts that we didn't quite agree on. We're able to like circle back and in those moments and like, okay, how do we want to go here? Cause we're, we're not quite on the same page. What's the right move. And often I think in any community who has, has done this sort of thing, that means that we'll lose some people and gain others in their place. So that's happened to us a few times. But we were really lucky to have one of our founding families um, with, is in this world, like helps nonprofits decide what their mission and vision are. And so was really good at facilitating sessions like that. So they facilitated a bunch of our earliest sessions to help us figure it out and told us like, okay, this is like, this is the part where you can't use me because I should be a voice in this conversation and it wouldn't be right for me to facilitate it and pointed to moments where it was important for us to bring in an outside facilitator for conversations. So we did a lot of that early on. And got to learn a lot about facilitation, I think, in those moments. Is there anything you remember that they did or were there any particular guiding questions they offered that you remember being particularly helpful? 
Um, I think I more remember like the mistakes, like the facilitators we brought in and were like, oh, you're really well-intentioned, but you don't understand enough about who we are and what we're going for to like, for these questions to be meaningful for us. <laughs> and that happened a few times when we brought in so many outside facilitators. I also like from listening to your intro to this series, that really resonated with me because there were a bunch of times where like, yeah, like they thought they understood what the end goal was and were very much trying to like steer us there. And when really we wanted more of a moment to like explore that. So I think in most, that's always how I learned the most is by like seeing what went wrong. But that's, I think one of the earliest moments where I figured out you can't really have a goal in mind. <laughs> if you're gonna facilitate a meeting, you have to, you have to be willing to let whatever's gonna happen happen. Yeah, awesome. Um, before I knew facilitation was a, I don't wanna say profession, but a profession, like a thing you can do in the world um, beyond ALC contexts. I stumbled into a meeting where a group of facilitators were trying to find someone who could facilitate them having a meeting. And I remember, Hear, overhearing one of them say it's the hardest thing to facilitate a room of facilitators and I didn't understand then but now I'm like oh <laughs> makes sense you've had to do that a bunch of times at like ALC training sessions as well right yeah well, and it's interesting to be aware and has been helpful for me to be have to be aware of kind of the multiple layers of it right the like both what is how I'm facilitating doing for this group? And also if I'm being critiqued and I'm being analyzed or someone's looking to me to like hone their craft, I'm like, all right, how, how is this, <laughs> you know, how does this work? Um, it's been fun, but we did not start with 15 families. So that's really exciting that you, you know, were aligned in your values and had the people you needed Super yeah, cool. we were pretty lucky in that regard. There were so many people who were passionate about this model and this school and putting something together. It was a really energetic and kind of amazing, energizing time. Had your kids been, self, like, how long had you been self-directing as a family prior to that? Um, since my oldest son, who is now 11, was four years old. So I had a good friend who was on staff at the Philadelphia Free School. So would have engaged him in conversation all the time, kind of as a skeptic in a lot of ways, but also as like someone who was really fascinated with this idea. Like I remember reading Summerhill in college and going, yeah, that, that's what I needed. <laughs> that's what I needed and never had. And uh, kind of being interested in providing that for my oldest son, who also though, like always seemed very intelligent and very like he would do really well in the school system and was always did well in like preschool class situation. Like he liked learning and wasn't afraid of it, which I think a lot of people end up in self-directed schools at first because there's something about the school system that doesn't work for them. And in our case, I don't think that would have been true. But he was four when most of his friends were a little bit older and his birthday put him outside of the cutoff for like entering kindergarten that year. But I didn't want to keep him in preschool when all of his friends would have aged out and he would have been 
starting over with a whole new crop of people. So I thought, hey, I have this year to play with. And I've been <laughs> interrogating my friend Joel here for like years now. Why don't we give it a try? So I sent him there fully expecting that we do it for a year and then like move on to whatever our eventual goal would be. And he loved it. He thrived in that year. He knew how to read by the end of the year and like had figured out all of these different processes about like how to get what he needed and um, how to handle it when he messed up and how to like learn from those experiences. And he would cry at the end of the day when I came to pick him up. I'm like, that's great. That's exactly what I want from a school for my kid. He's so happy. He doesn't want to leave. So he was going for years and then I was super excited to send my youngest child to Philly Free School also. And then that was such a learning experience for me because my kids are, I think, possibly a different species from each other. <laughs> like They're very different. And for Dylan, all the things that went so well for Wyatt were so hard and were like the things that he that he just couldn't figure out, like the, the part of ALCs that are about making the implicit explicit. I'm like, yes, this is exactly what, what Dylan needed at the free school because he couldn't figure out all the unsaid stuff. And that's where he was, he was struggling. He really needed someone to make that stuff clear for him and to help provide him with a little bit more structure in his day than was available at a separate school. So after his first year, I was considering options Coincidentally, like it was a rough year for the school itself, for, for PFS itself. And that had me questioning a lot about power dynamics in schools and how, how to like, how to think about that and organize that and to like, to use that to empower kids and not just to say that they're empowered, which it, that's what it felt like to me. Honestly though, rethinking that situation now, as someone who has worked in a school for many years, my opinion is being completely different. Well, um, so can I ask how you ended up working in the Philly ALC? Like, were you like, I will admin as a supportive kind of part-time thing? Or were you like, oh, I'm staff and in it? No, I thought I, thought I would work there for a year and help them get off the ground is I think the, my original plan was we had a bunch of people in our community who were going to be great facilitators. And I'm like, yes, I want them to do that. That's awesome. Um, they're going to need a little bit of help. And I have time I can give right now to make get this project off the ground. And I was building a little bit off my previous experience. I had helped start a play school here and had like worked in their leadership committee, their like governing body for two years coming into this experience, I'm like, okay, I have a bit of a skill set that I can use in this environment. It'll be helpful. I'll get the school off the ground and then I will phase out and move on to my next project. But by the end of the year, this was it, I think, for me. <laughs> I remember like going to a lot of our like initial community meetings, like in school, once when school started, thinking like, I'm mostly here in my admin capacity to like observe how this works so I can talk knowledgeably to parents in our community and to to prospective parents about how it works and what we're, we're going for and how we're, we're doing things. And then like just making observations about the process and like, oh, what if we tweaked this? And what if we tweaked that? And what if we did it this way? And then like sharing those ideas with my teammates when we would have meetings and then trying those things and those things would work. And I'm like, now I'm, I'm just focused on the process all the time. I'm focused on how to, how to do it a little bit better. 
and slowly and slowly stepped more into doing more of that myself. Having been in different governance groups in different settings, are there clear things that you saw or experienced that you're like, remember never to do that? Um, and conversely, are there things where you're like, I will always do this in governance groups moving forward? I have, I've had lots of time to observe people who are really good at manipulating meetings who like understood all the rules and use that to their advantage and very clearly like am, know to check myself now in a meeting if I have more skill and have more ability to to work that system to be like, that's not the point though. <laughs> so I have to, to step back. So that was a, a learning experience, but also um, the, the, opposite, the opposite of that. I learned when to step on the gas as well as when to step on the, on the brake, which I think is something I didn't know about myself until being involved in these leadership bodies is that I'm good at, at getting things done and, and making sure people are working towards goals and to know when to use that skill and when not to. Which I find like working with our parent community or with our assembly, I'm much more prone to step on the gas. And when facilitating children, I'm much more cognizant of the fact that my job is to like, I'm just listening and I'm making sure that you're listening to each other and to not step in actively at all, which was hard for me. <laughs> but, but that was a, that was a key part of my learning experience. Yeah. I appreciate that distinction. That's real. And so as you've been facilitating more with young people, and that's a this year thing, did you say? It's gradually over time. I think the first year I did hardly any actual facilitation. By year two, I did have like my own spawn and stuff like that. Like year one, I would do the occasional offering. Year two, I had a spawn and would facilitate larger group meetings on, on the occasion. Year three, I'm pretty actively in the mix. I do a lot of offerings. I do a lot of meeting facilitation and I have a spot. How does that feel? That feels good. That feels good. Like being something very different than what you had imagined originally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm kind of surprised that I'm like better at it than I would think I would be. Like I, I remember early on in our big group conversations about like what the school should look like and who can help out in which capacity. I never would have said like, I'm going to be good with working with kids, but I think I am. I'm good at amplifying quiet voices is definitely a, a way in which I think I, I improve the community and I'm good at like actively thinking about how I am acting in the space and how I'm facilitating a meeting and what tweaks I can make to make the process run better. And that's such an important part, I think, of working in an agile school is willing to make mistakes and willing to say, oh, I totally messed this up. How can I do it better in the future? I'm surprised that I like it so much more than I thought. I had to like really kind of play around with tools to figure out how they worked for me. Like I remember being really not understanding spawn or really not feeling like I could grasp how to use it at first and had to like meet a bunch of agile facilitators and hear the different ways that they handled that meeting to find a way that worked for me. And once like I, once I was willing to release the like the idea that it was strictly productive <laughs> like, and was like more about community building than it was being productive 
I found it such a powerful tool and such a useful thing. Games. I became really into games. I remember going to my first um, ALF training with you guys at ALC NYC, and I think I cracked a couple times about like, oh, uh, the camp counselor parts, like those are hard for me, even though I am a former camp counselor. <laughs> but that that's was stuff that initially, like I didn't feel like I would jive with, but now I see the power of games. I, I see why you use that. Do you do games in your spawn? Yeah, we do games in our spawn. Um, we're big fans of Poison Dart Frog. Don't know that one. Is it like a card game or a theater game? Oh no, it's um, it's it's kind of like mafia. Like there's a murderer and there's a detective, and the detective sits in the middle of a circle of people, and the the murderer is one of the people on the outside the circle, and they slowly are killing off the whole circle, and the detective needs to figure out who it is. Great. That sounds really fun. <laughs> you mentioned being uncertain, like in the first few years and now feeling more confident in your facilitation. Do you remember like growth moments for you as you like changed roles or anything, anything you sought out for yourself as you were trying to figure out how to be effective in a different role? Yeah. Let's see some key growth moments. I think it was important for me to like really learn and understand and like from an experience point of view, how important it is to let kids fail and not have the right answer. And I think learning how to do that, um, I learned a lot how to do that from the second out training I went to in Charlotte from this woman from who was talking about sociocracy, hope. <laughs> Hope did a, did a session on sociocracy and uh, provided that like that easy to remember mnemonic. Uh, it's uh, good enough for now, safe enough to try. <laughs> and that that has been really helpful for me to like to know that like I can as long as it's safe enough to try that I'm willing to like let you do whatever you want right now. And we're not we don't have to come to the right answer. And that I that I used to, I think, kind of stick into meetings and really want to like help them see where they should be going eventually. And we didn't, we had this early, early conflict because a lot of our kids came from a Sudbury school, right? Where they don't like any sort of imposition of schedule. All of that stuff is hard for them and is stressful. So they wanted to basically do away with all meetings. So <laughs> make all meetings entirely optional, which is not, you know, in Agile, it's, they're typically a part of the schedule. And these are things we're, because we're actively community, community building, we do together and, and trying to explain that to them was not really effective. And what we eventually had to do was let it happen. Like, okay, your, your point of view is that the fact that you have to come to meetings is ruining this experience for you. You don't think we should have to do that. Fine. Let's, let's do away with the meetings. Let's experience it. And we did that for a while and found that like, you know, no one knew what was going on. <laughs> like offerings wouldn't happen because people wouldn't realize that that was supposed to happen at the same time as this thing. And they would go out of the building and be on an adventure and miss this, this thing that they really wanted to, to be a part of. And they would, wouldn't understand check and change up, um, wouldn't do very much because we as facilitators are the only people who would attend that meeting normally, or maybe one or two students as well. And we were so conscious of like, we don't want to make decisions for you. So even if you're still writing awarenesses, and they definitely were, we weren't making changes <laughs> based on their awarenesses very often because we didn't have any agreement. Like there was nobody talking this through together. 
So they would realize that, like things they wanted to improve weren't improving. And slowly it took like two months, but they were like, oh yeah, we need meetings. <laughs> meetings are helpful. Let's let's start adding some more back in. Just this meeting will be mandatory now. Like we'll just, just set the week. We'll all go to set the week. That's important. And then, okay, yeah. Check and change up is important, but maybe, maybe you don't have to be at the whole thing. Maybe you just have to be at half of it. So you can like make sure you understand what's gonna be talked about at the meeting and understand what was decided at the last meeting. And then the other part can be entirely optional. So if you don't wanna make decisions, you don't have to make decisions, you can leave. And slowly Spawn came back too. They're like, yeah, like I'm really having trouble remembering like what I wanna do from day to day. And like my schedule is getting away from me. So let's, let's bring Spawn back and give that a try. And it was such a slow process and kind of frustrating from like the perspective of like, I, I see how this works. I see how it's helpful to you, but you need to see how it's helpful to you. So we have to stand back. And our parent community was really upset about that one. So I spent a lot of time explaining to parents as well. It's like, this is, this is how you learn to make decisions, right? Is by sometimes making bad ones. So we're letting them make the bad one, but we're going to see what they learned from that. Maybe, <laughs> maybe there's important data we'll get out of this process. And we did, and it was really slow and really frustrating, I think, for a lot of the adults who were watching the process. But I think in the end, it was super powerful and, and convinced them that there was a point to this meeting. Because if you have the power to do away with all the structure, then obviously the meeting has power. I love that story. <laughs> um, I'm imagining like, trying to talk down parents who are like, ah, and you're like, just a little more patient. No, like more patient than that. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, it's really. And they would like explain, you know, the model to me a lot of times I'm like, no, I'm on board with you. I like the meetings. I think that they are really useful, but they don't yet. And we got to wait and see. Yeah. Cool. Um, what was that experience like as a parent <laughs> and having your my kids I will like honestly admit are two of the biggest forces for chaos in my school <laughs> at all times because they you know have always been self-directed Dylan was one when Wyatt started going to to PFS and that you know I think very much altered the way we handled our household from that moment on so like they've always felt like they can make decisions for themselves and are always very skeptical of any, any moment that feels like that's being taken away from them. So they'll always speak up in a meeting. <laughs> they'll always, uh, they were definitely arguing for the meetings to go. And yeah, it's frustrating because I want my kids, I think, I think I have this feeling like I want my kids to be little ambassadors for the program, like, come on, you were like there from the early days, you understand what we're going for. You were enthusiastic about this part of it. Remember, remember why? And that's not their job. And I have to remind myself of that all the time. I think at this point, my biggest achievement this year is like, I've noticed in, there's a lot of moments where I'm interacting with my kids in an offering or in a meeting and I've forgotten that they're mine entirely. Like it'll occur to me after the fact, I'm like, oh wait, that, I was like really impressed with how that kid was was behaving in that offering and that insight they made about that short story we were reading. Oh yeah, that was my kid. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> that's that's great. Cool. Um, what 
So I think my understanding is that you had pods this year and kind of a hybrid situation where you have some groups in the space and outdoor days and online time. Yeah. Yeah. We were truly agile this year, as in we tried all of the things and um, saw what worked for us in any given moment. So we started the year um, fully in person for for like two thirds of the community and one third was purely online. We had one designated online facilitator and three facilitators in the building. And David, who was kind of unofficially kind of pinch hitting in the online universe while like providing some logistical support to the school, the in-person school. Um, And we, you know, very carefully monitored how COVID was doing in our area. Then around Thanksgiving, when COVID numbers were spiking in Philly, we made the decision to split into pods with two facilitators each in them and lost some in-person people to entirely decided at that moment to go entirely virtual while a decent amount decided to stay with us and do the two-person, two-day-a-week thing. And then we gradually altered that to give people more time in the building. We did two days a week in person. Sorry, I'm losing my voice a little bit. Um, We did two days in person, two days online, and one day that was like half in the building and half entirely outdoor days. And of course, at that moment, it was January. (laughs) So nobody's ideal time to spend three hours outside, but we made it work. We learned so much from that, from that experience, which was useful in moments later in the year when we felt like it was prudent to spend more time outside. We like, we had all the skill set. plus nothing's harder than being outside when it's 20 degrees. And if we survived that, then we can do 40 days, 40 degree days outside. No problem. And find ways to entertain ourselves with even more people around. It'll be great. Yeah, I remember panicking last spring when we made the call to close down and we made that decision like 12 hours before Governor Wolf ordered the schools closed. Like we were not very much in advance of him, but it decided for us, it didn't, it didn't feel safe to, to keep holding school in person. And we immediately knew, okay, here's, we had guidance from, from you actually, you were really helpful in giving us our original kind of starting point about how to go online. So we already like, okay, we have Zoom ready. We know we're connecting to the network and are able to rely on all these other centers who are sharing programming. And that's that's gonna be clutch. Um, we took your original Glide app and like altered it to meet our needs, which was really helpful. And we were off to the rails and just kind of like made the decision early on that we were prioritizing connection over coercion and opportunity over obligation. So we told families, we're here for you and we're going to continue offering programming. And if you, if your child opts to show up to none of it, that's fine. It's not a problem. We'll check in periodically to make sure you're getting what you need and that's it. And so we just kept rolling and tweaking to meet the needs of the people who kept showing up. And they did like the majority of the school kept showing up and we kept finding ways to engage and in ways that they wouldn't when they were in the building, like offerings that wouldn't pique their interest when we were all together. Because I think really when, when you get a group of kids together in person, socializing is like their, their major motivation. Like they're gonna find ways to hang out together and to do, and to create their own games, which is great. Like all that's valuable learning experience too. And we're all for that. 
But when they couldn't do that, when they didn't have that tool, offerings filled that need for them because they were a way to connect to the community and hang out with their friends and learn new things and fill some time because they were bored. So we did all sorts of awesome things. And we tried to have a wide variety of options available to everyone because some people were really into Zoom offerings and some people would, would get online with us to play a game and some people wanted to get online with us to read books to each other. We had three students learn how to read over, over quarantine last spring, which is amazing to me. <laughs> like just from the process of reading to each other on, on Zoom, they figured it out. It was pretty great. Um, we had, we also offered like, okay, if you're, if getting into a Zoom session is too overwhelming for you with like all of these kids, that's cool. If you want to meet one-on-one with a facilitator, we can do that too. So for three months, I played Victorian parlor games with one kid one day a week, <laughs> which was super fun. We would spend an hour together <laughs> every Tuesday and just find a new word game really to play. And it was great. And Jesse spent like a similar, did a similar thing, spending one hour a week with a kid playing video games. Like he would teach her a new video games because she would try to engage him and like, okay, let's, let's do some planning about your like academic future and what your goals are. And he wasn't into that. So she was like, cool. Tell me about what you're into. He's like, well, I'm playing this game now. She's like, great, teach me. So he taught her <laughs> various games over that period of time. It was awesome. What else was really, we played a lot of Among Us online, <laughs> tons of that. We did, um, we found like Spawn worked amazingly well online. We've like figured out, we did so many tweaks and so many iterations of what Spawn should look like online and eventually came up with a formula that pretty steadily worked for us where we would have like, everybody would gather together in one Zoom room at first and then we would do, use breakout rooms to have like an energetic great breakout room that would really create, like have a creative prompt and usually do a drawing of that sort of thing collaboratively together. And we'd have one more conversation focused breakout room and we put the people in the, in the correct place and either have a conversation with them or let them like draw and create this like magical hybrid monster robot dude. And everybody was really satisfied with that. And at the end of the day, all of us very successfully could gather together and just like, here's how I spent my time. And it was amazing to hear how kids were filling their days and what they were getting up to. And a lot of that was engaging with the larger ALC community and making friendships and making forming relationships that they never would have otherwise. I also, that's like, come to think of it, that's a key moment where I learned a lot about facilitation because I would just go to people's offerings and say like, hey, I'm actually just here to watch. I'm trying to figure out how you're doing this. And like what's working and what's not like, cool. <laughs> and so I would mute my mic, turn off my camera and just kind of experience how they were running this online offering and learned a lot from that. And then would take those things forward when I was doing them and see if it worked with our community and what didn't. Yeah, that was such an interesting experience of being new at facilitating again. You know, trying to be like, all right, I'm really good at this when there's the hallway and you know, these six rooms and the park across the street, but what, what works on Zoom? What doesn't, if there's siblings popping in or cats or someone's just listening, like how do you, you know, and I'm a big um, advocate for people being able to keep their cameras off if they want. I feel like that's really important, um, you know. And so also it was like how to make it feel connected and good when we're a room of, all of our little avatars, you know. 
Yeah. Everyone's just sleepy. Are you doing, have you done any of the online offerings this year? Um, yeah, I've, I've hosted it, continued to host a few of them and they're, I think, more challenging this year for me because I'm in the building. So I also have to have my attention there. I'm in this noisy space normally and figuring out like how to find quiet corners to facilitate stuff and trying to like both meet the needs of people who are with me in person for that offering and like the one or two people who are joining remotely. That was, that was super challenging. Don't know if I ever really got the hang of that. And now it luckily it seems to work out that like either there are people who want to do it in person or there are people who want to do it online. So I've been able to like pick and choose, but yeah, we've kept doing creative writing and we're, we're, I was doing that as a hybrid for a while. Super hard, <laughs> but people kept coming to it. So that was useful. Um, we've really had a lot of luck with like doing languages online using like Babel and various online programs. Can I ask how you facilitate the creative writing offering? Um, yeah, so I like you'd like to start with a little warm up just to get people to kind of release their inhibitions and try to make it. I tell them like my my goal always in these warm ups is to box you in as much as possible, so you're like not really thinking about like creating something great. Like you're just you're trying to write your way out of the box, and uh, I give them like 10, 15 minutes to do that, and then we usually would. Sometimes we would read something by a published author, depending on who came up, showed up. And I never really would know who would show up. So I would have to have a few different plans in mind. It was like a choose your own adventure novel. Like <laughs> if this person comes today, we're going to have to do this. If this person comes today, then we're going to do that. So sometimes there was some reading involved in it. Sometimes there was a collaboratively created prompt because there are some kids who really got into that. And there are some kids who were like really serious about the writing process and wanted me to have um, a, a firmer lesson plan in place. So I would do a lot of, of that as well. So I actually studied creative writing in college. So I went back to all, all of that stuff, pulled out all the books again. I'm like, okay, cool. What worked for me? This worked for me. <laughs> let's, let's, let's try that. Let's try this. Let's try this exercise, which I feel like gives you something interesting. And I tried to also use it as a way to like, help you be a person. Like I did a lot of, when it seems like dynamics were tough for people, I would throw in a, a writing prompt about, you know, switching perspective, like taking a, rewriting a fairy tale from another perspective in the story and like explaining really why Cinderella's evil stepsister was, was right. And Cinderella was kind of a spoiled brat. And let's redo the whole thing that way. And the kids like did so well. I was really impressed watching them grow as writers over the course of these of the months in, in, in quarantine and this year as well. Like they became really good storytellers, really tight storytellers. Yeah. The part where we're still working on, I think, is like getting people to be willing to edit. Like our kids are so into the original creative explosion, but then they're like, okay, and next, what's the next idea? What can I work on next? And getting them to kind of want to circle back with things and like, see that they could make things better. You can keep trying to fix the same thing. That'll yeah. come in time. <laughs> I know adults who still struggle with that. I know, right? I'm like, this is actually what we're doing here. <laughs> this is what this school is all about, is like trying to do the same thing better, a little bit better every time. But okay, <laughs> you're not ready. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. 
when that's useful to you, let me know. And sometimes it is like I have a couple of those kids who now mostly write independently, but will like come to me occasionally and be like, here's what I wrote. What do you think? And have, and I can do a more active critique of that piece. I'm like, well, this part's great. Here's where like you can tighten it up. Cool. Yeah. Um, to speak of iterations and experiments, you, I'm a little jealous of that giant park space that you all have been going to, um, which I may need you to explain for people who aren't familiar with Philly. Um, but I would love to hear about the evolution of the pizza oven, like how that came about, or like now it's pizza. You started with melting crayons. We started with, yeah, it's a solar oven. We actually haven't done pizza yet, but we do do s'mores a lot. But we did just start with melting crayons. Yeah, we had some kids who like wanted to learn, like, wanted to try more sciencey things. Like they started talking about more sciencey things, and they were tinkering in that way in the space. And um, with one of them in particular who like wanted clear invitations to engage in science, I was just kept trying different experiments with him. And one day I'm like, hey, do you want to build a solar oven? And he's like, yeah, let's build a solar oven. So and we, because it was just him and me was the whole plan. We started with like a really small model that we were going to build. And slowly, like as we sat in the makerspace, which is in the center of our space, more and more kids kept jumping in. Like, yeah, I wanted, you're making a solar oven. That sounds amazing. I want to jump in on that too. How can I help? And I'm like, okay, well, now that there's eight of us, we can't build this tiny shoebox solar oven that I was imagining. What can we build now? How can we do it? Okay, cool. Here's this giant box. We're just going to take this original idea and we're going to scale it up. <laughs> we're going to make it giant. Find this in the space. Add that. Who's going to do this part? Cool, cool. Let's do it. And so we ended up with this like ridiculously large, it was like a computer box solar oven that we take with us places now, including to South Philly Meadows where we spent a lot of time. But we took it out to the playground the first day and they're like, okay, so we made this thing. That's not going to work. Like it just looks like a box. It has a sheet of plastic over the top. It's lined with aluminum foil. They're like, I don't understand how nothing's going to happen with this thing. So we took, a little metal pot with some crayons and it was like 50 degrees, not ideal solar oven testing day, but I'm like, we're going to try it. We're just going to see what happens. We'll see where we can tweak this design. And already I was looking at it going like, I think there's probably ways we can make this a little better, but we tried it. It took like two hours, but the crayons melted. And I kept just having them check it. How does it feel? Put your hand in there. Does it feel warmer? And they got super into it. And then they were like doing other solar heating experiments with like magnifying glasses and sent it and starting little fires with leaves and magnifying glass all over the place. It was a fun day. And then we've just kept building on it since then. And we make improvements pretty much every time we use it. We're like, oh, be better if the plastic top was a little bit more firmly secured because we keep having to like hold it back up. How can we fix that? And someone will come up with an idea. So it's this kind of awesome living, growing thing that we use all the time. But yes, we take it to South Philly Meadows a lot. South Philly Meadows is this spot in FDR Park, which was a golf course that closed down about two years ago and has slowly been reclaimed by nature and over the pandemic kind of purposely so. Like they were returning it to the wild and now it's this big wild space that people spend a lot of time in and are improving with various projects. 
like public art pieces and stuff in, in the space and like making shelters and creating invitations for other people to like engage in the space in that way. Yeah. So we, um, we started going down there just as a kind of an experiment to go down there every once in a while. And then we also, as part of a larger conversation, we started to have in the space about screen time and about people feeling like they weren't in fully in control with how they were spending their time because they felt magnetized towards screens and ways in which we could like handle that and make it, make it feel better for everyone. Um, we decided we would try a weekly outdoor day, which we've been doing now for months. <laughs> they really got, got into that. And at first that was always at South Philly Meadows. And then after I think it was week five or six, they're like, well, what else is out there? Why do we have to always go there? And so they would start making proposals about other green spaces in the city that we could spend a day at and we would try them out. So we've spent days at Bartram's Gardens, um, at the Navy Yard, uh, last week at the Wissahickon. We're always willing to try something new. And there's a lot of learning experiences there too. <laughs> like I've never been to the Wissahickon before last Thursday <laughs> when I arrived there with, with 20 kids. So. My gosh, your kids, I'm trying to remember. I'm like, I think it was one of your kids who was explaining like, walking to Dunkin' Donuts from the old location as an adventure. And That's quite possible. Dunkin' Donuts was, was a big part of our, of, um, of our original space because we were near not one, not two, but three different Dunkin' Donuts, which all had their own advantages. So people would go to different ones and learn the different routes to them. Yeah, the route was a discussion. I remember like very much appreciating listening to the uh, deliberations about how we were going to get to this Dunkin' Donuts. So, it's exciting. Yeah, that's always like was an ongoing conversation with us because like as adults, <laughs> like do you want people spending all their money on donuts? Not so much, but it's like it's their choice. So we wouldn't if you, they asked you to take them to Dunkin' Donuts, we'd go to Dunkin' Donuts. But David, especially, who has big feelings about, about food choices and about, like trying to encourage kids to make better ones would like use that walk to discuss why he himself did not want a donut and wouldn't opt in for that. <laughs> and no, he wouldn't buy you a donut. <laughs> but sure, he'll walk with you to Dunkin' Donuts. I do that uh, on our walks to like the KFC. I was like, I'm not going to partake, but I'm going to really enjoy this quality time with you. And like, let's see what happens on the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you, I'm assuming your outdoor day, like bag and personal prep has evolved a little bit throughout the year. Yeah. How has that changed? Is there anything you've learned? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. At first, the ga- the goal of my outdoor supplies was totally to like, make it not suck. You know, it's like I was making kids be outside. It was really, really cold. Nobody was really in favor of doing that. And that included facilitators. Like this felt uncomfortable for all of us to be outside for this period of time when it was cold. So the only thing I would bring with me really on those days when we were spending three, like a half day in the park was at your suggestion actually was hot chocolate. (laughs) Yeah, so I started out with just bribery supplies really. And slowly as like our days have gotten longer outside and like the, 
the goals have changed. It's not just to like not suck, it's to help you engage with your environment and also to be prepared for anything we need. So now we pretty regularly bring the solar oven, which requires s'mores supplies, almost always, paper towels, gloves, because we are creating food in the time of COVID. Um, so we always have hand sanitizer. And now at this point, because we've spent so many days there, I'm like, what are all the things that people have asked me for? That I'm like, oh yeah, I should have that. So now masking tape is always in the bag. String of various kinds is always a part of it. Scissors, magnifying glasses are always there. Paper, markers. Yeah, now most recently because they've gotten into to nature and trying to catalog what's around there, now there's an iPad in the bag to identify, but that only really has apps on it for identifying birds and different plants in the areas we're in. And uh, also, but I'm not the only one who has a bag that we take on these trips. So Trish has another one. And Trish is our facilitator is new to us this year. And she primarily focuses on our roots kids and our younger kids. So she always has simple board games that you can do out anywhere. And she's always great for having extra warm items that I feel like I would never re remember to bring, but Trish always does. And a storybook of some sort. It's a couple of options there to read to kids. Oh, oh my God, there's more. But also Justin always brings hammocks at this point. That's how our supplies are well. <laughs> and teenagers have my hammock right now, but like big fan of that. Yeah, and he brings three of them. And so they're like, wherever we are, we set up camp basically. I'm also loving to watch how the kids' supplies are evolving. We had a couple kids last week bring like a tiny tent. I'm like, that's perfect. You do need that <laughs> for the day. If we're going to be somewhere for six hours, you might as well have your own little tiny tent. And they bring like blankets. They've like, they fully want to make this, this process kind of amazing and homey. Great. I always bring the tent and it's not the lightest item. Uh, I'm like, oh, the kids brought their own. Look at that. Yeah. Hmm. And it's this tiny, like, I think intended for a single person backpacking tent. So it's the perfect thing to, to do. So good. Especially since we arrived at the Wissahickon going, we're, we're not exactly sure where home base will be. So we might need to walk for a while and all your stuff has to really fit on your back. What is, Mel has a good line about that, right? Like never more than you can carry, which I always think about when I'm Telling telling kids about what you should bring into a space. You should definitely have your water. You should definitely have food, but also you shouldn't have any more that you can carry. Great day. I love our outdoor days and usually get home and have a moment where I'm like, like, how do people who also have children do this after period? Because there's usually a solid 40 minutes if I've done, you know, six to eight hours outside, especially in the winter when it was cold. I'd come home and my brain was just like useless for a solid chunk of time. Um, how have you negotiated that? Like, oh man, I totally feel that way. But also I think I feel that way every day. Like it's exhausting being with kids all day. I'm lucky in the fact that my kids are older. They're eight and 11. So they're pretty able to take care of themselves when we get home. So I can... I can chill out and they can take care of themselves. They find things to do, play games themselves. 
go play in the backyard. And I think like we've spent a lot of time because we've been together so much over the pandemic, really thinking about what we need and want from each other and like having really explicit conversations about that and talking a lot about my stress about their screen time and like what they find really rewarding about that and stuff. And have kind of like come up with my kind of stepping on the gas a little bit more about encouraging them to direct their time and direct their education, but also as part of that seeing like, yeah, no, I totally get that there's times when you just need to play that video game over and over again, or when you need to watch those YouTube videos. And I used to, I think, fixate too much on the specifics of that. Like, okay, I understand why you want to watch this TV show, which like has a story arc and it makes sense to me. And I'm okay with you vegging out doing that. But the YouTube videos of someone playing a video game, that feels really hard for me. (laughs) And that really feels like a waste of time. And now at this point, I've let that go. (laughs) If you find it valuable to to watch a video game, to watch somebody else play a video game and you feel like you'd learn something from that, great, go do it. As long as you're making some proactive decisions about how you're spending your own time. So like when they were home during the pandemic, my rule for them was like, we collaboratively came up with a checklist of things that they should do every day. And my request on there was that like, you try something every day, try one offering, pick anything you want. I don't care what it is try it and go for it. And they found a lot of things that they love that way. So now that's useful data for them to have. And so they can make more decisions like that in their like regular school lives. Were there um, moments where they tried a thing and then were like, no, or started and then quit? And yeah. And that was fine. And my my rule with them was like, you, you go, you stay for like 10 minutes and like you get the lay of the land. And if you hate it, you can politely explain that you're, you need to go. Yeah, that had to be okay. I think if you're encouraging someone to try, encouraging someone to bail is the, is part of that, making room for, for the exit. Yeah, I think that's a learning for new facilitators often is both the like, I can deliberately be choosing to, you know, numb out for 20 minutes watching some junk TV. And that's like a valid choice. And I can choose to like say no more of something and quit it or put it down. And that's also a valid choice. You know, yeah. Sometimes that's, that's a change from regular kind of regular schooling environments. Yeah. yeah. We had some of our older kids in the space this year, I think are really starting to think about how they're making decisions and think about what they want out of their education. And that led us to do at the request of one of our students, like I was running two very regular, very like academic-y offerings. One was was English class, we called it, but really we just read a short story a week and critique it and talk about it. And the other one was history lessons where we would go through early American history because that's the, the time period she was focused on. And we did those for, I think it was three months that arc lasted and then she got to a point, she's like, okay, I'm going to finish out this week and then I'm done. And like slowly over time, her offerings had developed a following, right? Like they were developed for her, but other people had started coming too. And then she was done. 
And that had gravity too, right? Like her deciding that I'm ready to move on meant that like other people were like, oh yeah, maybe I'm ready to move on too. So those are on, on pause now, which is hard for me because <laughs> I was, I was really into that, enjoying that, but also like, yeah, if I want, if I want her and other students to like engage with something like that and to like commit to doing homework and projects and reading on their own time like that, they have to know that they're not committing forever and that they can stop whenever they want because they did a lot of work it was really kind of an impressive amount of work and the stuff that they read and understood was amazing to me <laughs> and the fact that like that they got so into it and really kind of developed an ear for like what they enjoyed about a story and were able to like request things based on that I think that was such a valuable experience I'm realizing I'm having a hard time figuring out how to ask about your co-facilitation dynamics because in the time of COVID, I'm like, how often are you, like, what does co-facilitation look like? So maybe the trick is to ask more about BC, but you, you would know better about how that's changed. But I'm like, in a space where a bunch of you are facilitators and founders and parents and your kids are there, and you've got facilitators who aren't, that's not the case, Yeah. in and out. Um, how do you make that work and how do you support each other? Yeah, that's that's been quite the journey. That's a really good question. Year one, I think our, one of our biggest struggles was like how to manage facilitating a school facilitating a school where your children went that was definitely a challenge and we spent a lot of time the three of us who were parent facilitators because at our school it was me and Justin and David all had kids in the program so we spent a lot of time especially amongst the three of us talking about it and coming up with very explicit asks there like mine was that I would be able to like pass on anything that involved my kids entirely like I never would do a culture circle with my children in it if it was like an offering that my kid was very interested in I wouldn't facilitate that offering I had to be very much hands-off I think for my kids at first if if my kid was obviously getting into a conflict with someone I would like signal to someone to like jump in because I feel like I would see things that other people wouldn't see but also like it didn't feel, I didn't feel like I had my legs yet there about how to step in and have that feel good to everyone involved. My kids will tell you, or definitely would have told you that first year that I was hardest on them, that I wasn't anybody else. And I think that other students would say the opposite. That would say like, that would think my kids got away with murder. And I think it's funny to look back on that now, because it's not an issue at all this year when I'm there all the time, very actively facilitating no one has, has complaints about that, including my own children this year, which is fascinating, but that took so much practice and time. And I think waiting to see, you know, like making sure other people were handling those things until I felt like I had learned the lessons on other people's kids about how to, what I wanted to say in that situation and how I could check myself when it was my own kid and how I could kind of disassociate from my own kids, which I think I've gotten good at by now. This year, we have three parent facilitators and three non-parent facilitators. And two of us who are parents are in the space all the time. We're the only two full-time people. We have two non-parent facilitators who are part-time, spending either two days a week or three days a week in the space. And there's Jesse, who's entirely remote at this point. 
although it's starting to come back into the space a little bit right now. It's funny, like, you know, all that time spent together in the first years, I think that me and me and Justin and David and Jesse have a really like tight bond and still like can work really well together, even if we're not occupying the same physical space, like can have a conversation on Slack and really like work it, work through it and come up with good, with a good plan and know what everybody's needs are there and make sure we're communicating very well. And we've had to learn how to like incorporate new brains into that hive mind <laughs> this, this year, which has been interesting because it's been a reminder to like make the implicit explicit again <laughs> on the facilitation level and to like make sure we're, we're making more actual like physical checklists of things that like we would just know to do because we've always done and how to model the behavior and to actively model the behavior like we want to see from from newer team members in the space but it's also meant like a lot of great conversations from outsiders who are in the mix for the first time who can observe our dynamics and observe the way we handle things and ask really interesting questions about it. So we've been able to reflect on processes, again, from a new point of view. It's also the first year that we tried <coughs> Roots and Branches. So we've had all of that to discuss. Are there things you find yourself are there reminders you find yourself giving new facilitators on a fairly consistent basis or where you're like, oh yeah, I had grown out of needing that reminder, but here it is again. Yeah, I think at first I like wasn't doing enough of thinking about that <laughs> really of like what, what people needed to hear and see other than like, you know, we did this initial training and I'm like, but now you're cool. And not realizing that in that first year, we did so much daily check-ins and so much like reflecting about what we tried that day that that part of the process is so key to learning about how to, to facilitate that the new people needed that as well. So we started more actively engaging in that, making sure that I was like staying behind at the end of the day to talk to the person who was closing and like, how did this go? And oh yeah, like maybe try that. And to like say in a meeting, no, it's okay. We're, we can like let there be silence. We don't have to fill the noise. Is one I've, I've definitely had to do a few times this year from people who are like not not used to that, and people who are not used to letting kids facilitate meetings. <laughs> we're like, no, we're gonna let let them do it however they want, really, and that's gonna it might have interesting effect, and we might do this. It might mean that we're playing this game that you don't understand <laughs> the purpose of, but that's gonna be okay. I think my favorite time a kid meeting has had an interesting effect is one of our kid facilitators changed the board of options for our gratitudes meeting. And so in the column that was like, what is, you know, are our bodies relaxed? Are we at attention? You know, that kind of a thing. Are we raucous? Um, they added upside down. <laughs> and so now have like a, there's an option to activate the upside down meeting, whatever version of that is comfortable for you? Oh man, I'd forgotten all about that. I think we did that when we were at training at ALC NYC and, and uh, yeah, that's awesome. We should add that back. Redoing the game shifting board has been so big this year. Like kids are really into that, especially since we have a few kids who are like, are coming from regular conventional public schools who are with us just for this year. And I think are like fascinated by the process of being able to facilitate a meeting. So Pretty much once a week, someone has entirely 
redone our game shifting board for our spawn. And I'm like, yeah, go for it. <laughs> so options are like added or most often subtracted, <laughs> like and become really streamlined and kind of interesting. And there's been like a lot of talk about how much freedom and how much control a facilitator can have over that meeting. Like, do we need to include the game or not? Is that a, a necessary component or is that something a facilitator can choose to use or not use in different I love, I love the way popcorn as a talking style evolves at all times. Now there's crackle as like the opener and burn is how you know you're done talking. I love that. Yeah. Ours usually just switches. Like people are like, am I popping? Am I a kernel? I don't really know. But they say a thing and then talk and then say a thing and it's just perpetually kind of going. You also facilitate the... You co-facilitate the Monday ALF calls for the network. Yeah, I do. Mostly because I um, I miss them. <laughs> I really wanted an opportunity to more actively talk about facilitation with a grander audience. So I was like poking Mel and Amber to like get back on it. I'm like, oh, but also I don't, I don't want to like assign you that I'll help. We'll jump in on that too. But that's been great. It's mostly been an opportunity just to connect with, with Mel and Amber on a regular basis who are such great facilitators and always have like such great perspective on things. It's been nice to talk. And I get, have you found yourself needing to actively facilitate those calls at all this year? It sounded when I checked in with Amber last week, like it's essentially a dinner meetup at this yeah. point. Yeah. It's super casual. And most often the three of us, maybe an occasional fourth or fifth jumping in to like talk about stuff. And sometimes it's someone, you know, who's, who's new to the game and is really coming for like a, but how do you handle this, 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 and that? And that's, those are actually really, those are my favorite kind of conversations to be involved in. It's like someone who's like newly excited about it and is thinking about the place that each and every tool plays in their school and how, what's going to be useful and what's not. That's great stuff to think and talk about. But it's also great to just connect with people and share like, yeah, Sometimes this feels really hard and it often does. Operating a school during a pandemic is not for the faint of heart. Yeah. <laughs> I feel you. I like re-enrollment stuff should have gone out two weeks ago, but I'm still waiting for the Department of Ed to update a bunch of their requirements so that I know what I can offer families next year, sort of, even knowing that like whatever we do say is going to have to change anyway by August, you know? Yeah, I think like all that pandemic stuff has really made parents and community members, I think, have a better understanding of like how agile all of our, how agile it feels to be at school <laughs> right now. We're like, we're, we're going to try this for now. And then when we like, when we've tried it for a while and figure out it doesn't work, we might need to, to try something else. Like we're no longer doing a long, extensive symptom checklist when you come in, we're like trusting that you understand those things now and are not going to come in under those circumstances. Yeah. Learning and growing. For sure. And are there spaces that you feel like you're a facilitator in or other spaces you facilitate in that you feel like parallel or feed your ALC facilitator experience? At the moment, not so much. I think most of my universe is, is being at ALC or being a parent. But you have some past ex like experience in like managing group dynamics, like as a summer camp counselor and a director of a, the writing program there. Uh, 
I think back on a lot about like tools you use in that sort of environment, especially since like my brother had the same responsibilities that I had there years before me. So it's always interesting to like talk to him about how he handled how he handled those things and, and to think about how we both handled those things and then put like the lens of like being a self-directed education facilitator on and going, well, I would, would do that differently. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Are there people or resources or experiences that you would be excited to shout out? Um, I'm telling everyone right now to read Akila Richards' Raising Free People, which I think is a really great book, especially if you are a parent considering sending your kid to this sort of space, because it's a pretty thorough deep dive about like why they ended up where they ended up and how they are constantly interrogating that process of like, oh, here are our goals and our, is what we're doing really meeting those goals? That's really fascinating. And I think that really helps parents understand what they're getting themselves into and how much active work it's going to take from like a whole family perspective to engage in this kind of a universe. What else? That's the big one for me at the moment. Are there things that you're reading for you that you're loving? What am I reading for me at the moment? I gotta like look around at the pile. That's one of those where I'm like, I know it's pandemic times and for some people that's meant like much less reading than usual, right? So like, you know, no judgment if that's the case, but. It's been, it's funny. It's come in like spurts of like, I'm reading everything and then I'm not. And then I'm like watching <laughs> all the things and, uh, I'm definitely not at a, at a moment right now where I'm reading all the things. I'm reading things that are like, that feel useful to a goal. So I'm, mm. I'm pre-reading short stories that I want to give to kids and reading a lot of short story collections and reading about the pandemic. I'm reading a lot of journalism about how to handle stuff like this. Yeah. Solid. Yeah, it's been super. I've been like alternating between how do you handle collective trauma and let me read some like N.K. Jemisin because I need inspiration. And then like, actually, I'm going to like go read some Joan Didion because I need to like be in an old, familiar, sad, nostalgic book. I love Joan Didion. Joan Didion is one of my favorites. Yeah. Good pandemic reads. Yeah. What did, I just read The Knicks, which kind of really fit my pandemic mindset a lot. I don't know that one. Uh, the Knicks is about... And like an adult writer kind of investigating his mother's past during the 60s and especially around the Chicago riots around the, the Democratic primary. It's a good thing to have read before you get into watching um, The Trial of Chicago 7, the Aaron Sorkin movie. It's good to have all of that information. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Well, is there anything I should have asked that I didn't or anything you were hoping I would ask? No, I don't know. Felt pretty thorough to me. Thank you so much for your time, especially after a, a school day. Thanks for asking. This was fun. <laughs>